Today's episode is brought to you by Parexcel. Parexcel is among the world's largest clinical research organizations, providing the full range of phase one to phase four clinical development services to help life-saving treatments reach patients faster. Leveraging their breadth of clinical, regulatory, and therapeutic expertise, Parexcel's team of more than 19,000 global professionals works in partnership with biopharmaceutical leaders, emerging innovators, sites, and organizations like Enlorum to design and deliver clinical trials with patients in mind. This increases access and participation to make clinical research a care option for anyone, anywhere. The company's depth of industry knowledge and strong track record gained over the past 40 years is moving the industry forward and advancing clinical research in healthcare's most complex areas like rare disease. With the people, insight, and focus on operational excellence, Parexcel's work with heart every day to treat patients with dignity and continuously learn from the experiences. So every trial makes a difference. Hello, everyone. It's uh, Stan Crook. I'm chairman and CEO of uh, NLARM, and I'm your host for the NLARM podcast series. Uh, today, I'm very pleased to have a, a colleague, Jamie McDonald. Jamie is uh, CEO of Paraxel, and we're going to spend some time talking about what Paraxel is and how important what Paraxel does is to our ability to help uh, patients with nanorare diseases. Jamie, welcome. It's great to have you. Stan, delighted to be on and, and obviously delighted to work with Anne Lorem as well. Well, given the fact that you're a Scot, I have to do this. I'm sorry, but do you play bagpipes and do you eat haggis? Uh, no to the bagpipes, but absolutely yes to haggis. Uh, a little bit of my upbringing. So uh, I've been in the States a long time, but I'm still lucky enough that I get to go home, see family, eat haggis, listen to bagpipes when other people play them. Yeah, well, more power to you. I tried it once and I thought I was going to gag for the rest of my life, but okie dokie. <laughs> and, and surely you play a lot of golf when you can. I can, yeah. That was definitely one of the things growing up. It was, it was great to grow up in Scotland. Despite the weather, golf is a national pastime, as you would guess. And uh, being here in the States now, there's, there's a lot of opportunity and, and better weather. A lot better weather. but uh, uh, So I know you grew up in Scotland. Did you grow up in Edinburgh directly or outside? or Outside. So my, my background is uh, my, my father was a farmer. His father was as well. My grandfather on the other side uh, served in the Royal Air Force. So uh, he was, a, he was a, a military man. But, but I grew up on a farm and my two brothers still farm. Uh, but I ended up in Edinburgh at university. Uh, I went to Harriet Watt University and studied economics and then worked in Edinburgh for quite a long time before being relocated with work um, here to North Carolina. And I've been here almost ever since. I had a couple of years back in the UK. Quite a transition just in geography. It's, it's relatively easy. It's a common language. I think the cultures are different, but the, the common language definitely helps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in the and South, in the South you've, you've got a lot of uh, residual effects of, of Scottish, Scottish uh, music, music on, on, on the music, music in, in, in the, the South, South, right? Yeah, and, and sort of culture. I think sort of the Scots migrated probably from the 17 and 1800s, came into the sort of northern side of the States and Canada, Obviously, Nova Scotia is New Scotland. And then as you came in through Maine, 
a lot of them tried to avoid the heat in the south and stayed up in the Appalachian Trail. So you've got uh, Highland Games still in, in parts of North Carolina. And then you have town names like Aberdeen that are, are very much Scottish names. So there, there's quite a bit of Scottish heritage here. Yeah, I had the distinct uh, boring event of watching uh, log, uh, tree throwing or whatever whatever you call it. But <laughs> Yeah, to- tossing the caber, a strange, a strange name, but yeah, essentially tossing trees. <laughs> well... Uh, anyway, that's uh, we could talk sports for a while, but we probably ought to move on. So you 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 obviously grew up on a farm, and you and you did your degree in economics. Those are both about as far afield from the, the practice of medicine and the delivery of medicines as one could imagine. Tell us how you uh, how you migrated from a nice, sensible. Uh, uh, business uh, principles to the uh, sort of odd process of drug discovery and development. Yeah, and it, it was serendipity. It's an unusual way to come into the industry, but I came in on the finance side. So after I did my degree in economics, I'm a chartered management accountant, so more the business side of, of finance. And I was lucky enough, I got a job in Edinburgh for a company called Syntex, uh, which no longer exists. It was acquired by Roche. Uh, back in 1994, uh, they produced a, a very good um, analgesic uh, compound. So many people in the U.S. would know it as a leave, but it's naproxen sodium. So I joined Syntex back in 1994 on the finance side. It was an integrated development site. So it had everything from preclinical, manufacturing, pharmaceutical sciences, regulatory affairs, and clinical so I got a great learning, even from the finance perspective, um, for about four or five years uh, in Edinburgh before coming to the States. So it was a little bit of serendipity on the finance and accounting side. And I stayed in that world really for about eight or nine years uh, before moving across to the operations side, really initially on the early development side. So as you would know, it's preclinical pharmaceutical sciences, labs, phase one, um, and then progressed into the clinical and project management world. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it is an interesting journey, and um, uh, I suppose uh, those of us in the industry always know this and assume it, and that is if you many come into the industry with the idea that they'd like to do something of value with their life and with their work, and making a drug is certainly that. And others sort of find their way to it after they enter the industry. When did it um, sort of hit you that you were actually being, you were privileged to be doing something that could matter to patients? Yeah, it was sort of interesting for me and and sort of my, my late high school, as you would call it in the U.S., I concentrated on three subjects. Uh, one was economics, and obviously that's where I went and did my degree. The other two were actually biology and chemistry. So I actually had a little bit of that background uh, prior to going off to, to university. I, I think it was pretty obvious early on how impactful the industry was in terms of creating new and better therapies to treat patients. I, I think for me, I think the, the, the really clarifying point of time, uh, I lost both my parents to cancer when they were fairly young. So my father was 60, my mother was 63. And I was really just starting to get involved from moving from finance to operations, 
understanding the drug development process from discovery and preclinical into clinical studies and how long and expensive that process was. And, and at the time, as you know, it would take as many as 12 to 14 years to go from discovery to market authorization. And the costs were significant, certainly back in the 90s, probably as much as $2 billion. And in today's dollars, it may be as many as $4 billion to go from discovery to market authorization. Prior to obviously getting into personalized medicine and having platforms that allow us to be more efficient and more effective at developing new drugs. Yeah. So uh, did you move to North Carolina with Syntex or Roche? It was, it was Roche by that time, I think. It, it was Quintile. So it was quite interesting. Uh, Roche already had substantial capabilities in the UK, Welling Garden City in London. Uh, when they acquired Syntex, they, they acquired the Maidenhead facility in the UK and then Edinburgh in Scotland. And they divested that site and about 300 people to what was a small CRO at the time called Quintiles, which is now IQVIA. And I, I spent a long time with them, 16 years, and was very fortunate. I spent time in the UK, US, back to the UK, back to the US, and went from finance to operations, initially on the, the early phase side and, and preclinical but then into clinical and project management, which I think most people know as the real clinical trial space. That's where you start to get involved more with customers, study design protocols, engaging investigators and physicians, and ultimately obviously bringing patients into the clinical trial process through consenting and screening uh, for, for trials that they're eligible for. Yeah, and you, you used the term CRO that um, many are not familiar with. It, it means contract research organizations, of course, and there are a wide range of different types of services that are provided to the industry, um, uh, and, and all, all those services can in one way or another be considered contract research organizations. But you were in a particular uh, uh, sort of sub slice of that CRO industry in, on the clinical side, is that right? It is. We provide support really for that first in human study, which is, as you know, but others might not know, is generally in healthy volunteers in, in many instances, all the way through the necessary patient trials to prove out safety, which is critically important, and then efficacy of new therapies. And then at large enough scale, obviously, to be statistically significant in order to support registration and market authorization. So we're really in that clinical space. But as you say, we provide services from clinical operations, project management, logistics, regulatory. It's a complex global environment to run clinical trials. And we have 20,000 people situated around the world. Uh, we have more people in Europe than we have in the North Americas. We have more people in Asia uh, than we even have in Europe as well. So it's, it's a truly global company. And the clinical trial environment is, is truly global. But supporting companies, uh, obviously like Enlorem or Ionis or others, who need those global capabilities and scale and experience that we bring. So we, we're, we're on the service side of the industry. Uh, we don't own products. We don't, uh, we don't uh, necessarily market or sell products, but we provide all those services. Yeah. And um, I think one of the goals out of this conversation is to help people understand how really 
complex and challenging clinical trials actually are. And uh, of course, if you have a very large clinical trial, you need to identify multiple physicians and sites that are capable of conducting a trial and taking care of the, the patient. Uh, and then you have to manage collecting all the data, make sure it's done right and all that. Uh, so Paracel is one of the larger clinical uh, research organizations. I, would, I don't know if you're two or three or four, but somewhere in there, I suppose. Um, and uh, you want to just talk to folks about the challenges of actually getting a trial, a big trial started. Yeah, it, it's a very complicated process, and it, it sort of really starts with identifying the patient population. I, I think all of us look at patients and disease and etiology and how new therapies might benefit those patients. Obviously, everybody would like to create curative therapies. I think sometimes people think that that's the case. But actually, there's a whole spectrum of obviously prevention. So think about vaccines. There is a limited number of curative therapies that completely resolve diseases for patients. And, and that's obviously exciting work. But there are trials that are designed to alleviate symptoms, slow the progression of disease. And I think you have to understand the patient, the, 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 the etiology and the movement of disease, and how those new therapies potentially target those diseases. And then focusing in on where are you going to find those patients? Where are you going to find physicians that treat those patients? How do you engage in a contracting process? Establish their credentials and their experience necessary to run those clinical trials. And then obviously protecting the patient throughout. I think the whole system is really designed to ensure the welfare and the rights of the patient are protected throughout. It's global, so the regulations, even though they're harmonized at a global level through what is called ICHGCP, so the International Conference on Harmonization Good Clinical Practice, they do vary country by country. So we're trying to navigate, in some trials, as many as 30 or 40 countries, um, quite often hundreds of sites and contracts, but then logistics, how do you get drug supply, lab supply, consumables to those sites? Uh, the documentation process, as you know, is significant. Essentially, the construct of a clinical trial has to be recreated from all the documents and data that we gather throughout that trial so that bodies like the FDA and other global agencies can come in and audit the conduct of the trial in line with the protocol and GCP. So it's a massively complicated process. I think people understand it relatively simply, but actually the logistics and documentation and process and rigor and audit is significant and quite rightly so. Yeah, it, it, no wonder it's so costly, no wonder it's so time consuming. Yeah. One of the notable features of, of, of Paracel is its uh, experience, uh, strength, focus, on rare and ultra-rare disease, and and now, of course, into single-patient trials, or I don't think we should call them. Every exposure of a experimental agent is an experiment, in my view, but it, obviously they're not trials in the in the in the same way that a a an FDA trial would be to gain approval. How did Paracel happen to? Um, 
uh, gravitate toward that rare end of the spectrum of diseases. Well, it's quite interesting. As you know, the industry historically was, was designed and served sort of larger disease populations. That was always the case. I think the progress that particularly has been made on the discovery and early development side has allowed us to, to sort of personalize some of these medicines. So better understanding of biology, better understanding of genetics. Uh, the whole human genome project has been important for drug research. And that's allowed companies to look at the, the rare and even nano rare space where it's become more feasible with the support of the regulators. I, I think agencies like the FDA and EMA in Europe have enabled the research to, to target what has been quite an underserved patient population um, where there was being rare disease, maybe less than a thousand patients globally. And then into the nano rare space, as you know, which is maybe less than 20 or 30 patients globally, they've quite often been underserved because the historic process cost and timelines didn't really allow for the more commercial or economic based research to, to support those patients. And I think obviously with Anlorum and the foundation, but I think others in the space as well, have realized that we can develop really impactful therapies for, for patients, particularly in the younger populations, adolescents and pediatrics. And we can build infrastructure and support um, that allows us to conduct, as you say, these experiments or trials that really can be life-changing for those patients. So it, it's a sort of motivation of the company as well as, as obviously a business decision. You bet. It's called helping patients, right? Indeed. And, uh, of course, um, I, I've spoken many times that one, what Enlorm is doing is industrializing the process of providing for free-for-life personalized ASO treatments to this extraordinarily rare patient population. Many of our patients really, so far as we know, are unique. That patient and that patient only has a mutation that is expressed in that patient. And... Um, uh, and one of my goals was to establish the infrastructure that would support all that because we, we, we look out and we plan to be treating many thousands of patients. That's a tough, tough task. It's hundreds of individual trials at the same time. And, um, you know, as you know, we talked to several uh, clinical research organizations. Ultimately, you and I decided that Paracel and, uh, and Enlorm were... Uh, an appropriate combination, an appropriate business investment and support from your perspective, and an important uh, um, decision on my part to put our patients uh, to some extent in your hands as well. Um, and um, not every clinical research organization was interested, uh, but Paracel was immediately and keenly interested. How come? I think it fits with the mission. Obviously, we're a commercial organization. I think we do work. We we are here to basically serve our investors and board. But I think sometimes you, you, you have another mission, which for us is, is really to understand how we can better serve patients. And, and I think the work that you're doing just sort of highlighted our, our sort of patient-first mentality and, and our sort of we care approach. And it's been quite interesting. We, we run hundreds of, of trials globally for a wide swath of the industry, if you want to call it that. 
But we internally get a lot of really positive feedback for the, for the work we do with and Lorem. It becomes quite personal for not just the team that's working with your team, but I think the wider Parexcel organization appreciates that we're working with you to, to bring clinical trial options to patients that might not otherwise be served by the industry. And I think that's really good work. We do good work all of the time in terms of important work. But I think when we can do it in a way that it, it might not otherwise get done, I think that's rewarding for us and, and our teams, not just the ones working with Ann Lauren. Yeah, that's very nice to hear. I think we are simply a tangible expression of the heart of our industry. Agreed. And, and uh, our partnership with, with Paracel is vital to our ability to meet our mission. And um, as you know, in, in uh, somewhere around two weeks in September here, we filed four INDs. INDs are the documents that you have to provide to the FDA to gain approval to expose a patient of any sort to an experimental agent. Um, and uh, we've been working with your team to be sure we were ready to take good care of those patients and to acquire all the knowledge that we could acquire as, as we treat those patients. And uh, 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 I know it was exciting for us. I imagine it was pretty exciting at Paracel too, wasn't it? Yeah, very much. And we, and we, we share that news with the organization. It's, it's something to be very proud of. Uh, it's a complicated process, as, as you've said. An IND takes a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. Um, our teams work well together, so I, I think on our side, obviously Angela is, is, is really a great resource, but yourself and Sarah on the, and Lorem side have worked well together. Um, the process that you have for identifying patients that you could potentially treat is, 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 is thorough and robust, and I think that's important as well. But it includes stakeholders on the manufacturing side. I think the, the agency has been very supportive from what we have seen. Um, and it's nice when it, it sort of comes together. It, it's very rare that you see that number of stakeholders that well aligned on a particular mission to support, um, not to just the patients for us. I think it's an extension to the family and the caregivers and others. This is potentially life-changing for the patient, but, but for their own family and uh, their own ecosystem. And that's really rewarding work from a uh, just a, an emotional uh, standpoint. It, it's, if you can't be empathetic in this industry, you're, you're probably in the wrong industry. <laughs> yes, I think if you don't care about the patient, eventually you'll, you'll lose your way and, and do something that harms the industry. We've seen that happen. And um, uh, so, um, and, and it is wonderful for me, every partner we have says pretty much what you say. It's it's been an incredible uh, benefit in, in in employee engagement and 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 commitment because it is the true expression of why many people come to work every day in this industry and that that I think is why we've gotten so much support and and it is the quality of the mission and the in the need for the mission so and. We couldn't do it without you, so thank you and all your team for that. We'll be asking for more. <laughs> yeah, oh no, and we're, we're here to support. I, I think that need that you reference is, is critically important, and I, and I think the industry sometimes has, has sort of overlooked the, the ultra or nano-rare patient population, and I think what, 
you're doing and Anne Lorem is doing is, is showing that that is possible. There are structures and mechanisms and platforms that will allow the industry to identify diseases that we can treat. The technology is there, the platforms are there, but there has to be a willingness to do the work and fund the work in order to benefit those patients. And I think this model is one that, that obviously, as Enlorem grows and extends, will, will support patients, but hopefully we see the, the model replicated elsewhere. Hope so. It's creating the path and then having others follow the path that is where all the leverage comes from. Well, Jamie, it's been uh, delightful to chat with you as always, and uh, I'm absolutely confident that uh, our listeners uh, gained a good bit of information. And um, so uh, folks who are listening, uh, Paracel is is one of the vital elements of the process. Without it, we can't do what we do and do it right. Is there anything I have forgotten to ask you that you'd like to say, Jamie, before we uh, sign off? No, Stan, it's always a pleasure to speak to you and and work with the team. I think uh, we we have regular dialogue, as you know, outside of these podcasts, and uh, it's great to be connected. And I I think um, that's what the industry is about. It's making connections across all the stakeholders. um, And and I think helping people understand there's a lot of good people in this industry trying to do important work. And when you get it all aligned well, we can do great and meaningful things. And That's what keeps us all motivated and keeps us all busy. Well, thank you for that. Uh, And with that, Jamie, thanks again. And uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, We'll be talking again. Pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by Parexcel. Parkcell is among the world's largest clinical research organizations, providing the full range of phase one to phase four clinical development services to help life-saving treatments reach patients faster. Leveraging their breadth of clinical, regulatory, and therapeutic expertise, Parkcell's team of more than 19,000 global professionals works in partnership with biopharmaceutical leaders, emerging innovators, sites, and organizations like Enlorum to design and deliver clinical trials with patients in mind. This increases access and participation to make clinical research a care option for anyone, anywhere. The company's depth of industry knowledge and strong track record gained over the past 40 years is moving the industry forward and advancing clinical research in healthcare's most complex areas like rare disease. With the people, insight, and focus on operational excellence, Parexcel's work with heart every day to treat patients with dignity and continuously learn from the experiences. So every trial makes a difference. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope, and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. 
This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.